Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Buddhish. So this week we were working on reading and discussing part two of Fascicle One of the Vajrasekara Sutra. Part one of that was uploaded a few weeks ago, and we wanted to go back to the second part, wherein primarily there is the description of the construction of the mandala. And in the process of reading and discussing that and creating an episode about that, I thought the whole time that we would only have like 10 or 15 minutes of discussion about that section, primarily because it is a formulaic, repeated sort of system where there is a figure like a bodhisattva or a Buddha who is named and then an object that's associated with them. And it's a whole process you'll hear about whenever we release the reading and discussion. But in that whole process, not very much changes in each repetition of the formula. And so I thought it was going to be very short. However, soon after Doc started reading it, he messaged me and he was like, I have no idea how you thought this was going to be just a 10 or 15 minute episode. There's so much in here. And that started us having a discussion about what we're going to be talking about in this episode today. So Docs, would you like to take it from here and talk about what you found from your experience reading that part of the Vajrasekara Sutra and how that kind of applies to things even beyond just that text? Sure. So for some background, if folks have not heard this before, I used to be a software developer. I am big time into math problems. Uh, I like logistics problems. I'm playing a logistics game in my spare time right now. So when you present me with this text, I immediately went, this is a matrix. And that immediately gets the computer science side of me going, because like the structure they are creating, the visual representation of this mandala uh, has very similar properties to a two-dimensional matrix in, or maybe a two-dimensional array in software development. So, so that immediately got me into the software developer mindset, which is super detail focused. So as soon as I saw that this was a repeating thing, a repeating formula, uh, my first instinct was chart out the differences because those are the important parts. And so I spent a while doing that. So first of all, that in itself increases the length of this reading significantly, going back and actually parsing out what each of these things changes. And then parsing out the symbolism of those individual things also takes a whole lot of time because I don't, I don't passively let that kind of symbolism pass by. I want to understand what it's trying to say. Uh, and so the big point that got me, got me going with this was when it was, uh, talking about the extreme nature of killing, for example being put into Virachana, the uh, various things in this assembly are uh, unpleasant. Bad karma, like stuff that Buddhism is trying to get people to stop doing. Now that in itself is, that is what it is, and I was ready to go on with the uh, the rest of the sutra from there, but it got me to thinking more about uh what I know about Virochana so far. And as I dug at that, like 
the the first time I hear the idea of a cosmic Buddha that is the Buddha of all Buddhas, you know, the personification of the Dharma. And when I first heard that, I had an instinctual concern, like that, I don't know if that's a good idea sort of thing, like from the concept of my own personal morality. So I'm not talking about a bad idea in general, just like an idea that I'm not compatible with. And reading over this sutra started the dominoes falling and finally helped me figure out why. So one thing that the Buddha has as an advantage over a lot of other religious figures and Buddhism in general has is that it doesn't have a start point. So like, because it's the one that it's the one that Americans know, I'm going to be talking about Christianity. God created the universe in that religion, which means he also created hell, which means fuck God is where that goes, basically. Like, that's the short version of that idea. So, when the Buddha is talking about the Dharma, it is something that he has perceived. It is not something he created or made. It was already there, and he saw it. So, when, you know, he talks about the victim-blaming, uh, deeply unfair nature of karma, like, yes, it's unfair, but that's not his fault. I suspect he would also agree that it is unfair. So the judgment that, you know, that got me so anti-Christian God can't apply to the Buddha because it's not his fault. Vairachana loses that advantage. So it's not quite as vehemently objecting as I would to the Christian God, and it's also not even an objection on the same level as I would say the Mahayana Theravada sniping that we've talked about before. It's not as extreme as those things, but the Narakas, uh, the hungry ghosts, how awful it is to be an animal, that's at Vairachana's feet now because he is the Dharma. It, it, a lot of it comes down to whether Vairochana has free will, and if you're personifying him and giving him dialogue and making him a character in the sutra, that very much implies that that is an individual with a will. Now, it is entirely possible that if I were to go further and read through more, that there's not that idea that... Uh, Vairachana isn't any more control of the Dharma than the Buddha is. But from where I'm looking at right now, he kind of is. And that means I would have to go to him, you know, uh, excluding the obvious arrogance involved in a human going to the manifestation of the Dharma for answers. Like, all the same, the Narakas are there. And they seem to, from where I'm looking at, they are there because he says they are. And that sucks. And that's kind of the, that's the core of what got me so strongly invested in this reading. It was not the reading itself, but that reading was the nudge that knocked over an already shaky structure. So you bring up a lot of interesting points there that 
I might not be able to address all of, but I definitely want to pull out some some more discussion about. So one of the most primary issues that I see that you are having here is this idea that Virachana has free will and that suffering exists because he sort of wills it to exist. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure that that's actually true in esoteric Buddhism, and that's definitely not really said explicitly in this section of the Vajrasekara Sutra that got us started talking about this. It's an interesting discussion nonetheless, and so we should definitely flesh it out, but I'm not so sure that Vairachana has all of this free will over how things go, and I think that that's related to how we ought understand Vairachana himself. So we say that he's the cosmic Buddha, and we kind of wave that away afterwards, and we don't really go into it any further. And there's kind of a reason for that. There's a lot of complicated questions about what is the actual nature of Vairachana that circulate all around Shingon Buddhism, and there's not really a good, solid, straight answer for that in terms that we can understand as unenlightened beings. But I can try and approximate what is going on, what he's up to, and what his whole thing is to try and give some sort of answer to the problems you've brought up. So we have an image of Vairachana, right? Any Shingon Buddhist temple that you go into, any Vajrayana Buddhist temple you go into, will probably have an image of Vairachana. He looks like a person. He looks like a, a regular Buddha. He has a lotus throne that he sits on, and he's sitting cross-legged on it, and he's usually doing something with his hands, a mudra, and he's got two eyes, a nose, a mouth. He's got the spot in between his eyes. He's got the knob on the top of his head. He's got all the marks of a Buddha. However, we should understand that that is only sort of the accessible, the human manifestation of Vairachana that we can put into icons for the purpose of worship. That's not the true nature. You'll remember the three-body doctrine, the, the Trikaya doctrine. There's the physical body, which is the body that, for example, Shakyamuni had. There's the celebration body, which appears to people who have done visualization meditation successfully. And there's the Dharma body, which is really, really kind of messy and nebulous as to what it actually is. In Shingon Buddhism, all of reality and all of everything encompassed by this mandala is the Dharmakaya of Vairachana. It's not the historical body or the celebration body, it's the Dharma body. And because it's the Dharma body, it's sort of being magnified or maximized to encompass and include everything in all of reality. The doctrine behind it is that everything in all of reality can potentially lead a person to enlightenment. So think about it like this. In the story of the historical Buddha Shakyamuni, the reason why he leaves the palace and stops being a prince and goes to seek enlightenment is because he witnesses bad things. He witnesses illness, old age, and death. And of course, the fourth site is uh, a monastic, an ascetic who's, who's renounced. And that, that's a good thing that causes him to decide to go do that. 
But the first three things are universally regarded as bad things. And the idea here is that even bad things can lead to enlightenment and therefore are part of the entirety of the sermon, right? The idea is that every single meaning that's possible interpenetrates into the singular meaning of one thing, one word, or one object, or one item. This is Indra's net that we see in the Flower Garland Sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra. This mutual interpenetration happens everywhere all the time. So everything good and everything bad is in every single thing, every single word, every single thought, every single experience, every single moment, all at one time. And what you experience out of that, the pieces of that that you're able to perceive and to hold on to and to remember and to participate in, is all due to your karma and your capacity for understanding the totality of reality. That differs between, of course, regular human beings, bodhisattvas, and Buddhas, right? That's all sort of laid out as being the path of enlightenment is the path to omniscience. So because of this mutual interpenetration, this bad stuff, killing, knives and weapons and fires and murder and desires and passions. For what it's worth, my objections are much more of the cosmic variety uh, things about like things humans do to each other. That's not on Virachana. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking much more the cosmic injustices that are inherent in the Buddhist cosmology. Uh, the main ones being hungry ghosts and hell dwellers. Like, right. I see what you mean. Ex- it, within the context of Buddhism, accepting all of these things as true things, if Vairochana is the Dharma, then all of those things are there as well. Uh, and this may be my unenlightened perspective, but uh, that doesn't seem even slightly necessary or helpful. Maybe I'm not understanding it correctly at some point there, but there's... The cruelty of life, and that's mostly humans' fault, that's not on whatever created us, but then there's the cruelty in the religions that happens after this life, and that's... Doctrines of damnation are a very quick way to get me to turn away from a religion. Buddhism, at least, isn't making, you know, a assertion that it's a deserved thing. Uh, but it's still like the cosmic level of horror that goes on in the bad parts of samsara like if vairochana is a being that you know does things then at some point that's either on him or it is beyond his control which makes me doubt that that would rather make me doubt like the actual cosmicness of the being in question so like i said it's a very uh it's a very nebulous and religion based objection that i have and this is also possibly part of the reason i'm not religious those are all valid points but i think that at the center of this is the question is the dharma sentient or not? Does the Dharma have agency or not? Because 
what we're seeing in the Vajra Sacra Sutra so far is that Vairochana has been aligned with or even regarded as being the same as the entirety of the Dharma. I mean, that's essentially what's going on. The Dharma is of cosmic scale because it applies to things universally. It's of this great and complete nature because it's supposed to account for everything, literally everything in reality. And what we're seeing here is nothing other than the Dharma being given a name and being given a face that we can put into an icon and worship at the center of a temple. So do you think that the Dharma itself is sentient? Because I can tell from what you're saying that Vairachana, you think that he himself is sentient, but is the Dharma sentient? I don't think so. And I also think that's why I was immediately suspicious of this idea of Vairachana. From what I am reading here, and this may be genuinely be misreading because this is not easy reading to get through for an English speaker, but it looks like Vairachana is doing and saying things in this sutra. It might be that I mixed up and lost track of a name somewhere, but in this sutra, at least, he seems to be a character. He is a character. That's absolutely true. So the thing is, you're right that the Dharma is not sentient. However, also, at the same time, well, I should say it's not about sentience. It's more about this agency to cause there to be a damnation doctrine. The Dharma doesn't have the agency for that to be the case. The Dharma can't decide that one way or the other. Vairochana can't decide that one way or the other either. Now, your natural response will be to point to the spot that you read, the, po the spot that we'll be reading and discussing soon, whenever we get that episode out, where it says that such and such bodhisattva came up and rested on the palm of, of Vairochana's hand, and he released his nature of killing upon all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, or he released, he released his nature of killing upon all of the gathered audience, or something like that. I can't quite remember word for word how the formula repeats, but essentially, whatever nature the figure has gets released upon everybody. And so you might be reading that as, okay, this bodhisattva has the nature of killing, of swords, of something like that, of a weapon of some kind, and Vairochana is the one releasing it. However, there's two things that are going on there that's making that not quite the case. One thing is that this is being taught to somebody. This whole sutra is being given to the meditating Shakyamuni before he reaches enlightenment. So keep that in mind is that this is not a creation story. It's not a, a recounting of something that's actually happened in the universe. It's actually just a specific teaching, a specific doctrine, a specific meditative practice being given to Shakyamuni from Vairochana. So anything that happens in here is really broadly going to be written off as being skillful means and not actually truly literally having happened or having been done by somebody. That doesn't mean it didn't happen though. It's very interesting. I mean, we have this in Buddhism all the time because of emptiness and because of skillful means and because in particular in esoteric Buddhism, this issue of like relativity there are things that happen that also don't happen, and they happened and didn't happen at the same time. Whenever a figure releases their nature of killing upon all the Tathagatas, as happens in this text, 
that sort of thing is not the creation of killing, and it's not the introduction of killing into the world around us. Similarly, whenever Mara comes in and is releasing their nature of of desire and passions and such and death, that's not the creation of desire and passion and death. And that's also not Vyarchana doing that onto the universe. Vyarchana is not releasing or introducing killing and death and passion and desire to the world. Rather, what he's doing is he's teaching in a symbolic fashion Shakyamuni how to understand how Mara and desire and passion and death and killing can all be regarded as being of a nature to enlighten people in the future. That's what I was sort of getting at before with the interpenetration idea is that what he's doing is he's demonstrating in a symbolic fashion to Shakyamuni by the creation of this mandala, he's demonstrating this idea that the entire universe, even the bad stuff, is something that can push people forward on the path of Buddhahood or the path of enlightenment. He's not creating those things himself. He's not introducing those things to the world. Rather, he's showing that these things already exist and have existed since, you know, beginningless time and will continue to exist until endless time. But just because they have existed and will exist in this nature doesn't mean that they are outside of the Dharma. The question that sort of leads to a lot of the doctrinal development in Shingon Buddhism is, is there anything that is outside the Dharma? In Sanskrit, the question is, is there anything that is a Dharma? Not like a single Dharma, but like a Dharma as in atypical. Empty. Exactly. The prefix a, which means not in English. Is there anything that is a Dharma? And Shingon comes up with the answer, no, there actually truly isn't. Vajrayana Buddhism comes up with, no, there actually truly isn't. And by this point in history, we've already seen all these other doctrinal innovations which have basically collapsed the distinction between the Buddha himself, the character in question, and the Dharma that he teaches. We've talked extensively about how that collapsed distinction is an innovation that deals with the death of the historical Buddha. How do we get through the world without an actual historical Buddha to lead and teach us? Well, the answer is because what he taught us is the same as him. It is one with his nature. And so if we worship the Dharma, then we're worshiping him. If we make into an icon the Dharma, that's making into an icon the Buddha. And this doctrinal distinction collapsing sort of gets magnified and taken to its extreme ends with Vajrayana Buddhism to the point where this Dharma, which is none other than the Buddha himself, becomes personified as the cosmic Buddha, as Vairachana, as a Buddha who already existed prior to this doctrinal innovation and is now becoming the face, you might say, of the Dharma. This sort of change is permissible because if he's the face of the Dharma, is not also Shakyamuni the face of the Dharma? Because like we've been saying, the Dharma exists and these Buddhas have just figured it out and told it to us. They didn't make it up. They didn't come up with it. They didn't create it. They can't destroy it. They can't create anything new about it. It is this total all-encompassing thing that already exists, and they're just showing it to us. Because the idea is that in our current nature, in our current situation, because of the nature of samsara and karma, and emptiness and impermanence and desire and passion, we can't see it exactly as it is 
by ourselves without a little help. And so that's sort of what's going on in this part of the text. My objections are just as much from the perspective of a storyteller as anything else. I think that leaving the Dharma unpersonified makes for a more compelling story. Now, that's not a good way to evaluate a religion, but it is the explanation for why I had the reaction I did. It's hard to explain. Like, if I tell you that stories have a shape, does that statement make sense to you at all? Absolutely. Okay, so most stories that you hear every day are a series of straight lines, just a a list of events and maybe an occasional detail in here and there that, you know, changes the direction, but doesn't really change it from being an essentially linear experience. Um, For an example that a lot of folks are going to be familiar with, the, the classic Campbellian hero's journey is a circle. Uh, it goes all over the place, but it ends up more or less where it began at the end of it. Um, a tabletop campaign, which is what I like to run, is a series of scribbles. Uh, it's improvised. It's not necessarily directed. Parts of it are definitely mistakes. Like, it's messy. One of the reasons that Buddhism has captured my interest so much is that the sutras are fractal and often symmetric. So it's the same thing repeated over and over again at smaller and larger scales. And if you look at one side, it's going to look more or less the same as if you look at it the other side, except inversed. So, and like that's a really cool structure. It makes these things fun to read, but it introduces a storytelling vulnerability that I've encountered in my own writing, which is, if you have something symmetric like that, a single mistake or detail that is changed or anything like that can radiate out and have huge implications. Um, I do this, I see this in video game design and game design in general. Like, there is one point where I was creating a series of abilities. I made an error early on in that process, and then everything that came after was wrong. And so when this sutra adds Vairachana to the mix and depicts him as a character within the sutra, which is all I have to work with here, so that is why I came to the conclusions I did, but that introduction shifts everything else that is in that symmetry in a slight way it's not nearly the same kind of shift that you would see in, say, the conversion to secular Buddhism. It's not nearly that drastic. But what comes out afterward, to me, feels like a weaker storytelling system, which is ultimately what I'm evaluating these stories as. Which, again, is probably the wrong approach. This is meant for a religious audience. And so part of it's an audience mismatch and part of it's just my own personal tics that come from growing up in a very strongly Christian area. Like, 
anytime I start hearing something that is on the scale that Vibratron is operating at, I am immediately going to have my defenses up. And in this case, it's it's like it's not even that I dislike Vibratrona because I like you know when I was talking about the Christian God, my conclusion was well fuck that guy. That's not my conclusion with Vibratrona. It's less fuck that guy and more hey please explain this. Like it's not a rejection; it's a question. And because Vibratrona is Vibra, you know a cosmic Buddha that probably isn't going to reach out and speak directly to me in a way that is unambiguous, I'm not going to be able to do that questioning. And so this is the closest I can get. And so that's why this episode happened. No, those are all good points. And I want to go back and say that whenever you mentioned you're approaching this from like a narrative point of view, and uh, you're interpreting this from a storytelling point of view, that's not wrong at all. I don't think that it's incorrect for me to say that there is no wrong approach to these texts if you're going to read them and talk about them and interpret them and explain them and analyze them because that fractal shape that symmetrical fractal shape that you're talking about it begs for that sort of analysis it begs for that sort of interpretation and to do so is to at the very least learn something new about buddhism and about buddhists and about history and about culture and about religion and philosophy as a whole. So I think that that's perfectly fine. I think that's great, actually, to look at these as stories. We often, whenever we do our Lotus Sutra episodes, we're really primarily looking at the story and the doctrine, but there's so much more to it than just that, that we leave out. But we prioritize the story and the doctrine because, one, historically, the story and the doctrine have been very highly favored. And two, those are the most sort of transformative and impactful parts of that sutra in particular that mark it out as different from others that have come before it. This sutra is very long compared to some of the other ones, compared to like the Heart Sutra that we've read and discussed, for example. And there is a set of characters. There's Vairochana and there's Shakyamuni and there's all of these other bodhisattvas in attendance. It's literally all the Tathagatas. Exactly right. And there's a plot where Shakyamuni is about to reach enlightenment and Vairochana comes to him and gives him this teaching. So there's, there's a plot where A, B, and C happens. And so it's important to analyze and interpret sutras from that point of view, absolutely, because they're, they're definitely falling into that category of literature if you're willing to read it and analyze it that way. However, like you say, there is the religious side of things where you have to ask, what is this actually saying about the way the world works and how religious people should act? And this shift that you're talking about with the introduction of Vairochana as being sort of the face of the entire universal cosmic reality encompassing Dharma, that shift is one of the reasons why we call Vajrayana Vajrayana and we don't call it Mahayana. Yeah. Because this is a point where Theravada and Mahayana Buddhists differ with Vajrayana Buddhists. There are a few differences in doctrine and stuff that we can talk about. For example, the issue with secrets, esoteric Buddhism means secret Buddhism, in a sense. The issue with secrets and slowly revealed teachings and basically 
connections and relationships existing between things beneath the pavement of reality, beneath the ability of beings' perceptions. That's one thing. And of course, the prioritization of Vairachana and not Amida and not Shakyamuni, that's another thing, right? Those are doctrinal differences that exist all the time, every day in Buddhism. And they're interesting, and we're going to talk about them a lot as we learn about esoteric Buddhism throughout the show. But they are not the big deal that separates Vajrayana from Mahayana and Theravada. Maybe you could make an argument that all the little things added up makes the big difference. But the real big difference, the thing that is so remarkably different that allows us to call this something different, is this whole idea that all of the universe is encompassed by Vairachana himself. This idea that not only does the Dharma have a face and a transmitter in the form of Tathagatas and Bodhisattvas and so on, but the Dharma itself has a body. We've talked about how a Buddha has three different kinds of bodies, but the Dharma now has a body, and that body is the body of Vairachana. That is a huge difference, and that is where we start to really entertain questions about, is Vairachana God? Like, is Vairachana the Christian God? That is a non-trivial question to ask, because in Christianity, God is everything and everywhere all the time. He created the universe. He is the universe. He's in all of us. He made all of us. And in Shingon Buddhism, Vairachana didn't create the universe. He didn't create all of us, but he is the whole thing. And so the distinction between Vairachana and a Christian god starts to get a little bit hazy, starts to get a little bit difficult. In a way that I suspect non-duality is actually kind of entertained by. Exactly right, yeah. Now, of course, the people writing this sutra and the people who motivated these doctrinal innovations that we see that caused this split between Vajrayana and other schools of Buddhism, they obviously were not writing their way into a Christian god. They had no idea about Christianity. They had no idea about what a Christian god cosmologically actually is. There's none of that going on. But what I'm talking about is the distinction between the space that would be occupied by a Christian god and that which is occupied by the body of the Dharma, which is the body of Vairachana, it starts to get similarly scaled and similarly positioned, if that makes sense. However, like I said, the vital difference is that Vairachana doesn't have agency over what goes on in sort of an existential or maybe a cosmological sense. If Vairachana woke up one day and decided that he wanted to add another realm of existence between hungry ghosts and animals, he couldn't do that. Similarly, if he wanted to remove hungry ghosts as an option for rebirth, if he's like, I just don't want people to be reborn as hungry ghosts anymore ever, he couldn't do that. But he does have this sort of infallibility that's associated with being the entirety of reality. And God has that same infallibility in Christianity. Now, I can't point to any text and tell you that I think that he's being fallible there. I can't point to any text with Vairachana in it and be like, yeah, he's being really wrong. He's failing. He's doing something bad. I can't point to any text like that because there isn't any. But the point still stands that Vajrayana affords him a level of infallibility 
that is not necessarily afforded to him in other schools, and he's being afforded a scale of cosmology that's not necessarily afforded to him or to anybody else in other schools. And so it's important to see that that is the primary difference here. Well, I suppose I haven't read enough about Vairachana then to come to the conclusion that he couldn't do any of those things, because that that I have not seen anything in the text so far to imply such. But, you know, even though I... Dislike isn't even the right word for it. It's more like question, like I'm not... I am... Uh, nervous about it. Like as soon as the idea of I caught the cosmic Buddha was mentioned on the show, uh, it was an immediately. Like, I didn't voice it because it didn't wasn't important at the time, but uh, it was an immediate moment of uncertainty in my head about whether that was a useful idea. Now, clearly, some folks do find it useful, or else this wouldn't be a successful religion. But it's just, I guess, the difference between different perspectives. Um, me disliking this does not does not make anybody who likes it lesser for liking it. Like that's fine. That's not what I'm talking about here. It's just like I said. I think that this is creating a weaker framework for stories, and that's how I'm approaching these things. Um, moving back to something that you said earlier as well, um, when we're talking about the Lotus Sutra and we're talking about the events and the doctrine, uh, and leaving the symbolism aside a bit, um, one of the reasons that that didn't happen here is because the symbolism is all there is. So that invites deep analysis of that symbolism, and then that analysis knocked over the first domino. Absolutely right. Yeah, no, this is, I mentioned this to you whenever you brought up the idea for this episode a couple of days ago, and I'll say it again on the air. I think that the way that I interpret the procession of this fascicle of the sutra is there is an explicit explanation of the doctrine of Vairachana and the universality of his nature and of the Dharma and of the Dharmakaya. And that's given to Shakyamuni in a very clear and obvious way. There's a whole section where they say, he is this, he is that, he is this, he is that, over and over again. And that's for Shakyamuni. They've talked to Shakyamuni and they're saying he is this. And of course, that's for us too. They're saying he is this. You should know that he is of both this nature of wonderful, joyous, rapturous enlightenment, and also of this nature of Mara, of desire and passion and death. All of those things are all part of him. That's just stated in blatant and explicit form. And then the second section, the construction of the mandala, is a symbolic and demonstrative way of explaining all of that. So the same doctrine is being explained a second time, but instead of it being explained through obvious statements directly to the audience, it is being performed as part of the construction of this great mandala. Now, whenever we discuss this episode, we're going to focus a lot on the mandala itself because it exists in a very interesting relationship with the other important mandala in in Vajrayana Buddhism, which is 
described and explained in a different text, which we'll read another time. But um, what's important here is that this is the actual construction of it. So the mandala has the scale of the entire universe. And so it's natural for us to think, okay, he's creating the whole universe. This is a creation story because the mandala includes everything. And you're right to have that response, but we'll discuss in that episode whenever it comes out that even though this is the construction of the whole universe, it's really actually just an explanation of one aspect of the nature of the universe. There's two mandalas in Vajrayana Buddhism which together reflect the total nature of the universe, but individually they reflect only specific parts. There's the womb mandala, which I think is the one that we get in this sutra. I always get the two mixed up. And there's the diamond realm mandala, which is explained in the Vairachana Abhisambodhi Sutra, the Enlightenment of Vairachana Sutra. So the womb mandala is everything that is potential, everything that is phenomenal, everything that could be great and amazing and perfect. After the secret, ideally adorned world of Vairachana is revealed to the practitioner. That secret, ideally adorned world is reflected by the diamond realm mandala. So these mandalas have these opposite but complementary natures and reflect opposite but complementary natures of all of the universe itself. So this mandala will have violent crap in it. It'll have like, for example, the, the actual physical mandala, when you look at the piece of art itself, it'll actually have demons eating people's limbs and it'll have people being killed. It'll have people being burned alive and all this other sort of stuff. And it's just reflecting that this stuff exists. This stuff is real in the world, but it has an enlightening effect, if nothing else. It has the ability to cause somebody who witnesses it or experiences it to decide, I want something better than this. I'm going to renounce. I'm going to pursue Buddhahood. Um, how do we close this? Like, it's entirely a matter of me looking at this text and bouncing in a different direction. And it's, like, it's not like I bounced off of this either. Uh, like I said, this is not a vehement rejection, but there's not much more to say here, really. Like, I understand what's going on, but at the same time, within the context of this story, they are portraying Vairachana as a character and characters can change. If Vibrachana is all of that stuff, then my question becomes, why stay there? Like I said before, at this point I'm questioning uh, a god or something very similar to one, like that there's multiple levels of foolishness in that, all bound up, but also that's how I think about it. I think a good way to close this episode would be to tell listeners and potential readers of this text to take all of this discussion with you into the text, because this question of does Vairachana have agency over how things are, and does the Dharma have agency over how things are, and essentially who is to blame for the awful stuff that we exist in, the awful stuff that we witness, and what is the purpose of that awful stuff? Is it a damnation doctrine or is it something else? All of these questions are really important. And 
I've given some resolution to some of them based on my own personal opinions and also my education in Buddhism and my own experiences with this stuff. But my answers haven't been the only answers. And there's multiple different interpretations that you can come to whenever you read this. And there's multiple different readings you can come to. And I think that what's most important is to be aware that this text will fit with everything that I've said and also the opposite, the negative of everything I've said, because that's just how it is. It goes both ways in a very interesting fashion. And so keep all of that in mind. The the multiple different meanings that you can find in this text whenever you read it, because anything you look for, I think you'll be able to find and have textual evidence for finding and talking about. It's very interesting in that way. And that's kind of why I wanted to read it on the show is because there's so much in it that we can unpack and discuss. And I'm glad that we got the chance to sort of discuss this big picture idea with all of esoteric Buddhism while we're in the middle of this text, because we definitely covered some necessary ground for interpreting and understanding how esoteric Buddhism works on a very larger scale than just this text while we were discussing it. So that was very good. I'm glad that you brought your ideas to me about what you read, and I'm glad that we did the show about it. Yeah, I mean, this was a good discussion. I enjoyed this immensely. Me too. Worth noting for the listener that this time it was completely unscripted, like we did not have a firm idea of what we were going to be talking about when we came here. So future episodes will hopefully be a bit more on topic and focused. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Buddhish. We will be releasing our reading and discussion of the part two of Fascicle One of Vajrasekhar Sutra soon. So this will be kind of like a, a mid-Fascicle break. It might not be a bad idea to do something like this throughout the text, just to keep touching base to see what the text is up to and how we're interpreting it, what we're bouncing off of, what we're bouncing around in, and what we're thinking about as we are going through this text in a more casual, less scripted, and less analytical fashion than perhaps the sutra discussions themselves. I think anybody hearing this discussion and then going at the end and saying less analytical would wonder what you mean by that word. Maybe just less scripted. Maybe just less sort of... More spontaneous. Honed in on the specific detailed stuff and more spontaneous and also more personal. Yeah. More personal to our own experience with the text. All right. Well, now that we've had this 15-minute discussion, hopefully the actual discussion of the fascicle will be 15 minutes, like you said originally. All right. Well, this has been great, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this is Med Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com, or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.